And welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I research something that I'm interested in, and then I pass on all the coolest parts to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So, part two, kind of. This is kind of part two. It's more like the sequel. uh, Is that? I guess that's different. Yeah. It is. You're not missing anything if you didn't listen to part one. And if you listen to part one and not this one, which doesn't make sense because... How would you be hearing this? True. You also wouldn't be missing anything. So fair enough. Fair enough. But hopefully, unlike most sequels, this one doesn't suck. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. I don't think it sucks. Good. Yeah, that's important, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, hold on, though. Be- okay. Before we jump into our actual topic. Uh-oh. No, not at Oh, all. good. Yes. Cool stuff. What do you think our show is? Some kind of bad news podcast? I hope not. I mean, you've been here long enough. I think you know by now. It's true. It's true. Um, I'm going to say something about octopuses. Okay. That seems human-like. Okay, well, I do all this research for the podcast. Yes. And then the Google algorithm's like, oh, you clearly want to know about octopuses. Yes. Or whatever I researched, right? Yeah. And then like three weeks to four weeks to however long after I've already released podcasts, then it sends me cool stuff that I'm like, oh, this would have been interesting before. That's not quite what happened in this case, because this research just came out. Okay. And I just wanted to like do a little update on octopuses. Okay. Because we talked about the octopus nursery. We did. We, well, I mean, several of them. But most specifically, the nursery that's the um, on the Dorado outcrop, like off the coast of Costa Rica, mm-hmm. where they had found that huge nursery, and they were like, maybe there's new species. These seem different. So the first paper from that research has been published. Okay. And officially... From that paper, they're like definitely at least four new species. So four new species. They think a few of them are definitely the musk octopus um, genus I talked about. There's one species that they're like, what is this? Like, it might be a whole new genus. It's a very unusual, different type of octopus. So okay. I just wanted to announce that there's at least four new species of octopus. Uh, haven't been named. Nothing like that yet. Um, so they're going to identify them, try to figure out where they fit. But... That's just the start, and it's very exciting. It is exciting. Cool. So back to this episode, though. Okay. Um, We're going to talk about people. Excellent. We're going to talk about specifically Homo sapiens. Right. Um, And just in this introductory phase, I wanted to drop an interesting interesting note. Um, Well, I feel like it's an interesting note. Throughout this research, what I've really noticed is that... um, more than anything else I've researched so far for this podcast, I think personal and societal and cultural biases have really encroached into Homo sapiens research. Like, sure. Just like, yeah, more than anything else. It's like we really want Homo sapiens to be a certain way because that's us. Right. Well, you know? or we really want male Homo sapiens to be a certain way because, okay. you know, or. And and just before we go too far, um, th- uh, this is so long since I've learned any of this, and I might be wrong, but there is there is a difference between Homo sapiens and then us as current people being Homo sapiens sapiens, right? 
Maybe. Okay. Well, then, will I find out later? We're not mm-hmm. considered by everyone to be a homo sapiens sapiens. Okay. Hmm. Now you're just confusing me, but that's okay. The subs- subspecies are controversial in general. The Got existence it. of them. Let alone, how do we separate things? Again, that's just another example of people being like, we have to be different than the Neanderthals. We have to be smarter. We have sure. to be... They're dumb cavemen, so we must be like this, and they must be like... Again, there's a lot of bias and... I'm not saying it's all wrong so much as not supported by evidence or lack of evidence towards certain conclusions. Okay. Okay. Well, how about you teach me something? I think I already did. Okay. I'll teach Done. you more things now. <laughs> okay. More things. Got it. Um, I would like to start by saying that I feel almost embarrassed that mm. I've learned this much about science and specifically biology in my life and never understood that the the genus Homo, yeah, okay. Our species name is Sapiens. Not Sapien. Yes, that's not a, that's not a thing. Okay. Homo Sapiens is the singular and plural. There isn't. Got mess. it. There's no such word with just the end. Okay. On the end. Yeah. Good to yeah. know. We are Homo Sapiens. I am Homo Ah uh, Homo Sapiens. Sure. I can live with that. Sounds odd, but it's it does. true. Um, so I think you know what homo means. And mm-hmm. even if you didn't listen to last episode, you probably know that homo means human. Yep. Um, sapiens means wise or sensible. Yeah. So apparently we're wise. See what I mean by that, bias? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're so smart. Look at our big brains. Yeah. Sapiens, so much that comes smarter from than all the homo. The uh, etymology of that is... Did you say entomology? I might have... That uh, means insects. The yeah, that's not the one I'm talking of. It's close, though. Etymology. Etymology, thank you. It's Latin. I was going to say Latin or Greek. Yeah, it's Latin, right? Okay. It's Latin, yes. Um, so, in the beginning. Let's go back to the beginning. Okay. Um, as we discussed last time, we don't know which, where the beginning came from. We don't exactly know which homo is our most recent ancestor. Right. Um, but... New fossil discoveries are suggesting to us that our modern human physical traits didn't emerge all at once, but, you know, gradually came about, which makes sense. Yeah, shocking. Um, here's another, you know, opportunity for me to pronounce everything wrong. A skull from Jebel Erud in Morocco, which is dated to like 300, 315,000 years old, something like that, um, had a modern looking face, but like at a very elongated, archaic brain case, like, okay. um, and it's been controversially assigned to Homo sapiens. Oh. Yes. Uh, because this would suggest that our, they call it globular, but, you know, more rounded uh, and not protruding brain case evolved later and not as kind of like this fully modern suite of features. Right. Yeah. Um, so when, well, let's go with how did Homo sapiens leave Africa? Okay. Let's do that. Again, I've heard a lot about this in the past. Yeah. So I was curious to see what the latest research right. shows. Um, well, because my impression had always been that they had gone up through the Middle East, like to the south and east side of the Mediterranean, um, had looped around up towards Europe and gone out towards, you know, what would be Asia. Is that being wrong now? 
everything's wrong now. What are you talking about? Fair enough. Did Homo sapiens leave Africa once or many times? Sure. Did okay. Homo sapiens leave from one population or many populations? Good questions. When, yeah, yeah. So, this is a big debate. Okay. Uh, genetic evidence suggests that there is this big foray out of Africa between uh, 60,000 and 80,000 years ago. Um, but clearly couldn't have been the first expedition because a, a, a skull being described as perplexing hmm. was found in, again, I don't know how you pronounce it, Apodema in Greece. Okay. That has been dated to more than 210,000 years old. Oh, okay. Perplexing. S- yeah. So it had gone, oh, wow, through Turkey Range over to current day Greece. Interesting. Okay. I don't know. Jump on a jump on a raft. <laughs> sure, on the Mediterranean and just see where it takes you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you think animals get to islands, right? Uh, yeah, it's that's true. Um, ancient remains of early Homo sapiens have been found in many places. The aforementioned Jebel Arud, Jebel Arud, let's go with that, in Morocco. Omo Kabish in Ethiopia, Floristad in South Africa. These things suggest to us our species probably arose from multiple sites. Okay. Probably. Probably. There is other theories. That's contrary to, you know, other theories. We originated from a single place in Africa in one big evolutionary leap. Right. So um, I kind of want to go back and start with the older theories. Older ones. The ones that I will probably have some knowledge of and then... Go into all the territories and describe how I'm wrong. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I'm okay. wrong, too. This is all new. Well, not all new. A lot of this stuff was new to me. So during the 1980s and 90s, the fossil record um, wasn't doing it for us. It wasn't answering these questions about whether Homo sapiens evolved from a single region and then dispersed or local ancestors across the, gro- the globe. Um, so DNA started to help us a little bit. They generally supported this single origin theory in their infancy when we first started doing them. Okay. Um, so the two major theories in the 80s and 90s uh, were known as the out-of-Africa model and the multi-regional model. So okay. you've probably heard of the out-of-Africa Re- yeah. model. Yeah. Um, it's also known as the single origin model. That makes sense. Yeah. Yes. So for a long time, it was the most widely favored explanation, which accounted for our origins, modern human. Um, it suggested that humans originated in Africa, modern humans, within the last 200,000 years from a single group of ancestors. Okay. As we just heard, a 315,000-year-old skull would... Suggest maybe not. Make that confusing, but... Perplexing, you perplexing. mean. Perplexing, yeah. yeah. Um, modern humans then continued to evolve in Africa and then spread to the Middle East by 100,000 years ago, possibly as early as 160,000 years ago. Again, that doesn't account for some skull in Greece, but yeah. okay. Well, some 210,000-year-old skull in Greece, that is. Yeah. Um, modern humans then only really become well-established elsewhere, out of Africa and the Middle East, 50,000 years ago. Oh, okay. So there's actually a, a pretty decent... That's what the out-of-Africa model okay. says. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the different physical features that we now find in modern humans from the different geographical areas are, for this model, believed to have evolved only... Over the last fifty to sixty thousand years, you know, ad- adaptations to different environments, mm-hmm. um, and as as modern humans spread, they were thought to have replaced all other human species. There is an extreme version of this model that suggested that modern humans kind of like replaced older humans without any interbreeding. Less extreme versions allowed for some interbreeding between populations. Um, 
as we know from last week, that part. Yeah. We know there was some interpreting. Yeah. But we're going back to the old theories, right? So the multi-regional model suggests that when human ancestors first left Africa two million years ago, they spread out and formed regional groups of early humans across Africa, Asia, and Europe. Yep. Then modern humans are evolving concurrently in all these regions, um, rather than a single group of humans in Africa. Right. Um, but the geographically separated populations are still genetically similar to another um, through interbreeding genetic mixing, and therefore we're still a single species. Correct. Yeah. And the different physical features that are found in modern humans then would have evolved over a very long period in each of these places, not just the last 36,000 years. Right. So those were the two old models. Spoilers. Hmm. We don't think those are right. Okay. Anymore. So now you're going to tell us about third, fourth, fifth, no, sixth I models? No, I mean, the out-of-Africa model is still much closer. Oh, okay. Um, so, obviously, we found new fossils. We, we do have that. much better technologies. Yeah. Which is the important part. I'm assuming especially in, like, genetics and genetic sequencing. DNA is a big one. Dating is a big one. Yeah. Better dating techniques, yeah. right? Um, so, hopefully, this is a more accurate picture. Of Homo sapiens origins, but like I'm going to say a million times, who, who knows? knows? Okay. Um, evidence still suggests all modern humans are descended from an African population of Homo sapiens that spread out of Africa about 60,000 years ago. Okay. Okay. Again, that doesn't mean that's the first time Homo sapiens left, no. just successfully. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, the things about out of Africa that are definitely incorrect, we know, is the Extensive inbreeding did occur with other um, homo populations. That were spread out across these areas before this 60,000-year mark. Um, yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, so scientists do think that general basis about Africa is, is okay. Okay. But there are things that do need to be um, revised. And what is still unclear is the ancestral modern modern human population inside of Africa. Now there's sure. questions of, um, did the Homo sapiens originate from a small local population then spread, or was there interbreeding between multiple groups across this wide area of Africa, and that ended up um, resulting in multiple groups of Homo sapiens? Okay. So that's the big question that the out-of-Africa model is not answering, that we don't know the answer to yet. But there was a controversial study published in the journal Nature in 2019 that claimed it could pinpoint where all modern humans arose. Oh, that could be controversial, sure. So the researchers studied mitochondrial DNA of the current residents across southern Africa. Okay. Um, So if you don't know, mitochondrial DNA is uh, a different type of DNA than your nuclear DNA. The DNA found in the nucleus of all your cells. Mitochondrial DNA, as the name suggests, is only found inside mitochondria. Sure. The powerhouse of your cells. Um, it is passed on matrilineal, matrilineally. Okay. Only from mother to child. Yeah. Um, and it's much shorter sequences, much smaller. It also survives much better than nuclear DNA. Um, but I'll talk about that in a second. So they then kind of layered this genetic data with the analysis of past climate and modern linguistics. So they incorporated all those things 
as well as some cultural and geographic distributions of the local populations. And what they suggested was that shifts in climate allowed branches of ancient populations to spread from Botswana's... Oh, God. Um, I was going to not say this name and just say a wetland in Botswana. Okay. Um, but maybe I'll make you say it because I'm always on looking stupid. Oh, so so okay. maybe, maybe you can pronounce this. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no. Mac Gaddy Kagaddy? Mac Gaddy Kagaddy? Mac Gaddy Okavango Wetland. That's my guess. Okay. Okay. So we're going with that. Um, to these newly formed zones of, of green areas that weren't there. Before, as the climate changed. They moved with, yeah, okay. Yes, moved with the cli- climate. Thousands of years later, a small population of these wanderers um, eventually leave Africa and ultimately inhabit every corner of the world. So that's their theory. So in our present day, this area is known as the, let's try it again, Mac-Gaddy-Caddy, pans I'm really, okay. Okay. M-A-K-G-A-D-I-K-G-A-D-I. Just so everyone knows what word we're struggling so hard to pronounce. However you say that word. So it's one of the world's largest salt flats today. Not a wetland. No. Um, 200,000 years ago, wetland. Well, I mean, salt flats typically would be a wetland or underwater at least. Yes, underwater. But I'm surprised that a a wetland is generally fresh water. Sure. Anyways. Um, yeah. It was a, an oasis, basically, in the middle of a, a very harsh desert. Okay. So the study um, authors claim this is the ancestral homeland of all modern humans, but this research has drawn a lot of criticism from other scientists. Um, some scientists support it, though. This is, this is not just, you know, it's yeah. wrong. Um, so they point out that although all humans alive do have mitochondrial DNA passed on from one common ancestor, the so-called mitochondrial Eve... Okay, yeah. Um, this is just a tiny fraction of our total genetic material. Of course. Tiny fraction. Um, so even if the proposed founder population that this study describes is the source of our mitochondrial DNA, that doesn't, it, like, account for the many others that contributed to our genetic pool today. Okay. Um, so one scientist put it this way, quote, the inferences from the empty, that's mitochondrial, DNA data are fundamentally flawed. In my view, this study amounts to storytelling. Hmm. Harsh. Horrible accusation to level at a scientist. Yeah. Um, So the issue here really lies in the availability of nuclear DNA. It doesn't last that long. Um, After baking in the African sun for however many hundreds of thousands of years, the nuclear DNA uh, is just not available. It's degraded. Um, For a variety of very complicated reasons, Mitochondrial DNA degrades at a slower rate than nuclear DNA. So it's used in in these studies, these types of studies. Um, Remember how I said that uh, it's it's shorter than nuclear DNA? Yep. So to give you um, an example or an idea of what we're talking about here, a mitochondrial DNA sequence would have around 16,500 base pairs. Uh, and nuclear DNA, it's more like 3 billion base pairs. Oh, there's a slight difference between those two numbers. Yeah, so that's kind of why the scientists are saying we're not getting a very full picture if you're just using this and saying that therefore, well, therefore anything. Yeah. 
Um, this is only a minute fraction of our genome. Right. Okay. So they're still hunting for nuclear DNA from ancient fossils. Um, but many researchers now instead are studying the genetics of indigenous African populations. Sure. So one of the deepest rooted lines of mitochondrial DNA is found mostly in people living across Southern Africa, especially the Kosan people. So to fill in some of these gaps in our genetic record, the researchers in this study sequenced mitochondrial DNA of 198 people from Namibia and South Africa, some of whom uh, are Kosan, others not. And so they combined them with previously collected DNA for a total of 1,217 people. Then they grouped Southern African populations by ethnicity and linguistics, um, and they used this to make kind of like a map, like a tree, tracing mitochondrial genetic relationships back 200,000 years. Okay. So this analysis revealed that for about 70,000 years, the early human populations kind of remained steady. Um, climate analysis revealed that the massive wetlands across Botswana made a stable home for early humans, but about 130 to 110,000 years ago, something changes. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is we're going back 200,000 years, right? Yeah. 70,000 years from 200,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. It's stable. All of a sudden, something changes, probably yeah. in the climate, and suddenly it's like an explosion of human lineages. All okay. these new lineages start to form. So that suggests that the green corridors that opened up that we talked about, um, you know, first in the northeast and then to the southwest, those encouraged migration of different groups, different directions. Yep. Um, so researchers actually have made similar trees for the Y chromosome DNA in the past, which if you're not aware of that, DNA is passed from father to, well, not child, son, yep. father to son only. Um, and the details are hazy, but it does hint at a very large branching genetic line in some modern humans living in Cameroon in Western Africa. So several studies also point to an even earlier branching ghost population, they call it, that intermixed with our species and left behind small traces of DNA in some African groups. Cool. Um, so even if this study is controversial, even if it's flawed, which it may or may not be, I'm not saying either way. Yeah. But even if it is, um, it is important because it focuses on analyzing today's African populations, um, which has, you may not be surprised to hear, been a gaping oversight in the past. Um, everyone, this is a quote from uh, another scientist not involved in this paper, but everyone recognizes we've been studying Europeans for way too long. As studies go out and sample more human genomic diversity, we'll eventually have a more deep and clear understanding of human history. Again, I don't really understand how it made sense to anyone that we should not be studying yeah. the African populations if we're trying to figure out what happened in Africa. But Yeah, really. Yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> so the study's authors do acknowledge, you know, yes, we could have arisen from multiple origins. There's not enough data, but they think the data that is there points to a single origin. Okay. Um, so that all being said, an article published in 2023 in Nature looked more closely at the African genetics. Yay. Good job. <laughs> so they examined uh, genome data from 290 people, mostly from four different genetically diverse populations. 
So they wanted to trace the similarities and differences between the populations over the hundreds of thousands of years is the goal here. Yeah. So that includes 85 people from a West African group called the Mende from Sierra Leone, 44 people from uh, the Nama Kosin group from Southern Africa, 46 people from the Amhara and Oromo groups in Ethiopia, and 23 from the Gumas group from Ethiopia. They also threw in 91 Europeans to count account for, you know, post-colonial influence and Neanderthal DNA. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So the research indicates that there's multiple ancestral groups from across Africa that contributed to the emergence of Homo sapiens in kind of a patchwork way, like migrating from one region to another, mixing over hundreds of thousands of years. Yep. It also found that everyone alive can trace their ancestry to at least two distinct populations present in Africa dating back about a million years. So maybe there's okay. two main original populations, maybe. Okay. Possibly. Um, so those findings don't support, you know, the single region theory. Or a scenario involving mixture with this, you know, ghost species. Yeah. Um, the authors conclude all humans share relatively recent common ancestry, but the story in the deeper past is more complicated. Sure. Yeah. Um so the ancestral groups were likely spread across a geographic landscape with a weak population structure. Like, that means there's a lot of migration between groups. Yep. Okay. A few weeks ago, three new papers were published in the journals Nature and Nature Ecology and Evolution. That's going to tell us more about early Homo sapiens. I'm happy. It's just in time for me to write this yeah. part two episode. That's convenient. I'm sure that's why they did it, yeah. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. How fortuitous. So, inside a cave beneath a medieval German castle. So, like, we're jumping forward here. We appear we're to done be... with Africa. Oh, wow. Okay, great. We don't have time for this. we got to move yeah. along here. Let's keep going. Yeah, okay. So, researchers discovered this pit of bones buried in layers of soil in a collapsed cave. Cool. All right. The uh, part of this is not new. So, previous researchers found this site, this cave, in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, it's the Ilsenhole Cave, below the Rannis Castle in the German state of Thuringia. Um, so, the castle was actually built above this cave, before any excavation. No one knew it was there. Um, now, though, they found this extra kind of pit. Because in the 20s and 30s, what happened was they found some animal bones or what they decided was animal bones. They found some things. It was cool. And then they hit this like one and a half meter thick rock. Okay. And in the 20s and 30s, that was like, okay, okay we're, we're done. done. Yeah. yeah. Um, so in 2016, the researchers, well, not those researchers, different researchers return. And, you know, now they can get through a rock. So at about seven and a half meters below the surface, they found layers that contain what are called leaf points. So it's kind of like a spear point. Arrowhead? Or, or okay. Spear, like a spear point, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And human bone fragments. Cool. So that sent the researchers digging through that old material that was collected in the 20s and 30s as well. And they found more skeleton fragments that had been missed all those years ago. Sure. Maybe mistaken for animal um, yeah. fragments or whatever. And so they realized that this genetic material from early humans... They died 45,000-ish years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, 
the climate in that area of Germany, well, of Europe, was was very harsh, like modern-day Siberia. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So they did DNA analysis to confirm these were human bone fragments. Um, some of them were the same person or family members. Okay. Um, so this means humans were having success in a really extreme climate 45,000 years ago, which we didn't know that we could do, basically. Um, so... This leads researchers to think that the cultural package early Homo sapiens had was better than, say, the Homo neanderthalensis okay. package. Sure. And and that leads to success. Okay. Um, more success than the Neanderthals. The study also suggests the leaf point technology is used by Homo sapiens. And this leaf point technology was previously attributed to Neanderthals. Really? So either they both used it, one got it from the other, or they've been attributing it to the wrong species of homo. Okay. So obviously they need to do more testing. Yeah. Um, maybe there are traces of Neanderthal genes in these bones. Maybe, you know, they're, they're excited to see what's going to happen. Um, so speaking of Neanderthals, I do want to address how Homo sapiens became the last human species left. Okay. I shouldn't say it like that. Possibly how. We don't know anything, for sure. Of course. Um, so, if you didn't listen to last episode, or you need a refresher, just 300,000 years ago, which is not that long ago in evolution, at least nine species of humans wander the Earth. Right. We have Homo sapiens, of course. We do. Just starting out. We have Neanderthals. Yep. Denisovans. Yep. Homo erectus. Yep. Homo longi, which I didn't talk about no. last time, also mm-hmm. known as the dragon man from China. Cool. There's like one fossil. I don't oh. know. Okay. Um, Homo heidelbergensis. Yep. And Homo naledi in Africa. And then the mini ones, the Homo florensiensis. Floresiensis and Homo luzonensis from Flores and Luzon Islands yep. uh, in Indonesia and the Philippines, respectively. So there are lots of theories about how uh, all of these guys disappeared and we did not in such a quick amount of time. Um, the hypotheses are Homo sapiens had a better infant survival rate, uh, climate change took out the other species, as we just saw. Homo mm-hmm. sapiens were pretty good at adapting to climate change. Yeah, pretty harsh ones by sounds of it. Yeah. Um, others, other theories suggest there's more active role Homo sapiens played as in mm. hunting other humans or interbreeding them to death, basically, assimilating yeah. their genes. Um, but one scientist said that, you know, hominin species were likely dying out all the time. The unusual thing is that we're still around. Sure. Yeah. Don't worry, we're doing our best. Okay, good. Um, an important advantage that, you know, prehistoric Homo sapiens appeared to have had was our population size. So the estimates of populations based on mitochondrial DNA suggest at their most abundant, Neanderthals had 52,000 members in Eurasia. Okay. That was the, the height of their population. Okay. Um... And that results in a lack of genetic diversity. It does. It would make them more susceptible to disease, less adaptable, you know, less likely to survive. 
Um, Homo sapiens, of course, had larger groups, greater genetic diversity, and that's not just about the adaptability of your genes. It's also, you know, having this wide network gives you an insurance policy. If your local climate goes haywire, you can move a bit further away and the Homo sapiens in that region might not attack you like they would if you're a different species outsider or whatever. Okay. You can maybe live over there now. Yeah. Um, so those networks also allow for exchange of cultural evolution or like cultural ideas and, and therefore a cultural evolution, right? Um, innovation, those kind of things like working together. Yep. So that social resilience, it could be what helped Homo sapiens survive the climate change that killed off other less adaptable species. So a 2022 study in Nature modeled the ancient climates and ecosystems in which Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, and Neanderthals lived and found they all lost significant portions of their habitats before disappearing. Okay. Um, That would make sense. A larger simulation in 2023, which included six Homo species and included the climate and vegetation over the last three million years, found that later Homo species, especially Homo sapiens, we're able to live in a wider range of habitats. Not surprising. Um, it's possible that instead a number of small advantages really allowed Homo sapiens to outcompete other human species. So again, I think I said this last time, but contrary to how they're depicted, Neanderthals were not stupid cavemen. Right. Yeah. All the current science shows that they're very capable. But Homo sapiens just appeared to be more capable. Yeah. So I just want to bust that caveman myth. Um, so things like weaving, sewing needles, these are things homo sapiens appear to have invented, um, you know, gives you a better seal on materials for clothing and tents, allows for better infant survival, better, well, better survival of the whole group, right? Yeah. But especially infant survival rates, which is a big deal for wild anythings, any animals. Yeah. Another possibility is, like I said, that homo sapiens kind of like interbred and assimilated the other human populations. Um, So there is genetic evidence that interbreeding did happen. Whether it's responsible for the disappearance of other species is really contentious. Um, Some people that currently live in Eurasia, as we said last time, have up to 2% Neanderthal DNA. In fact, there's some geneticists that are trying to assemble the Neanderthal genome by sequencing living people, they think they can get to about 40% of the Neanderthal genome just by sampling different Eurasian people. Cool. Um, populations in Oceania, as we talked about last time, have between 2 and 4% Denisovan DNA. Yeah. Some groups even higher. There's also that tantalizing mystery I kind of mentioned earlier of the unknown human ancestor who apparently contributed between 2% and 19% of the genetic um, material of people living in West Africa today. Oh, that could be that pretty high. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so that's interesting. Um, so in 2020, there was two researchers from the University of California, the one in Los Angeles, who obtained the genomes of more than 400 people living in Nigeria, Sierra, Le- Sierra Leone, and the Gambia. Um, and they estimated whatever these mystery ancient humans were, they interbred with Homo sapiens in the last 124,000 years. Um. So that kind of brings us to this increasingly confusing definition of species, let alone subspecies, which I complained about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So 
there's obviously a lot of debate among a lot of scientists, but especially paleoanthropologists. Some of them don't even recognize all the humans we talked about last time. Some recognize even more than I mentioned last time. Um, at what point does one species become another? We should just be talking about them as regional variants, yada, yada, yada. So, for instance, the arguments are, you know, if we interbred with Neanderthals and Denisovans, how can we classify ourselves as separate species? Yeah. Um, should these other species be classified as a subspecies? Like you are saying, as some people believe, there is Homo sapiens neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens sapiens. Okay. That is definitely not universally agreed upon, though. Sure. Right? So, the biological species concept says that organisms belong to separate species if they can no longer interbreed and produce fertile offspring. Not just produce offspring, but fertile offspring. So, like a horse and And a donkey. Making a mule. Make a mule. Yeah. But mules are sterile. Correct. So, you know, the whole liger tie-on things. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... However, this definition of species, which I learned in school, has a lot of limitations and is outdated and uh, many don't support it anymore. And there are dozens of other species concepts. Um, None of them definitive and none of them are that much more helpful. Like, we know from genome research that many species of mammal interbreed. So, for example, different kinds of baboons, different species of baboons have viable offspring. Uh, Wolves and wild dogs. There's wolf dogs, right? Yeah. Well, they're different species. Yeah. Uh, bears, different bears can interbreed. Large cats. Um, there's also a recent estimate suggesting at least 16% of all bird species interbreed with each other in the wild. Really? I know. That's crazy. That is crazy. Um, so the biological species concept is seeming to be less and less useful as we explore DNA and genomic research. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the reality is that in most cases... Species are diverging from each other gradually, so gradually it's going to take millions of years for full reproductive isolation to develop. Um, and so the answer is that the more we learn, the more we don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. So um, nature just doesn't fit into these little tidy categories that we would like it to fit into as the of course classifiers and organizers that we are, right? Yeah. So, you know, shades of gray and all that. It's another who knows thing. I'm not going to answer this question. There's no answer. Who knows? <laughs> okay, great. Leave us on a cliffhanger. <laughs> Is it really? No. <laughs> just a hanger. The answer will just gradually come through many more years of science. So, yeah. hang on that cliff for a while, guys. Yeah. So, what were ancient Homo sapiens like? Okay. I'm just going to do a quick summary. Slash overview. Because... There's too many things. Right? Of course there are. This yeah. is hundreds of thousands of years of history. I'm not going to touch on everything. And a lot of people. I'm not going to talk about, like, these people made this type of tools. These people, like, mm-hmm. nah. So, anatomically, modern humans are generally characterized by a lighter build compared to earlier humans. Um, we have very large brains, you probably know. 1,300, 1,400 cubic centimeters on average is, like, the cranial capacity. Um, and, and housing our big brain involved reorganizing the skull into what we think of as a modern skull. Thin walls, high vaulted skulls, flat near vertical forehead. Um, so modern human faces also show much less, if any, brow ridge, those heavy brow ridges, um, and less prognathism, like the jutting out 
jaw. Right. Our jaws are less heavily developed with smaller teeth, which is why we have issues. Well, some people have issues with their wisdom yeah. teeth. Yeah. Or you could be highly evolved like me and not have wisdom teeth. Very lucky. Um, I, I'm just kidding. Don't get mad at me. This has nothing to do with evolution. <laughs> Anyways, um, another interesting note is that Neanderthals, again, often thought of as less intelligent. as They had a pretty much same size of cranial capacity. Okay. And so there's a study about a decade ago that proposed the difference lied in the organization of our brains. They thought that a greater percentage of the Neanderthal brain was devoted to vision and controlling their larger bodies, um, leaving less mental real estate for the higher thinking, cultural, social stuff that Homo sapiens developed. Okay. Um, another interesting note about Homo sapiens is that we had chins. True. Which is something that no other Homo species had had. In fact, no animals have chins. We are the only ones that have chins. Interesting. So I was like, why? Why would that be the case? What are chins for? It's a good question. So I looked it up. Okay. And again, I don't know. But here's some hypotheses. Some researchers think that the modern human chin helps the jaw stand up to the forces generated by chewing. Sure. Okay. So a recent study was done to test that. Um, which proved the development of the chin doesn't seem to have anything to do with resistance to bending stresses. Hmm. So that's so, good probably, try. It's probably yeah. out. It's probably out. Um, other theories are that chins are an adaptation for speech, that they develop due to sexual selection. Yeah. Okay. Kind of me some of those chins. Yeah. Or that they're just an incidental byproduct of the rest of the face evolving to be smaller. Okay. I, all sound like plausibilities. Or the other choice is none of the above. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So prehistoric Homo sapiens, of course, made and used stone tools. They also made a variety of more like complex and specialized tools. Um, fish hooks, harpoons, bows, arrows, spear throwers, sewing needles, that kind of thing. Um, by 164,000 years ago, modern humans were collecting and cooking shellfish. We have evidence of that. By 90,000 years ago, modern humans had begun making specialized fishing tools. Um, something called behavioral modernity is thought to have arisen 40 to 50,000 years ago. And scientists use that to mark the beginning of the upper paleolithic. Now that's controversial. <laughs> um, so most often when people don't think it's controversial, the things they include in behavioral moder modernity are fully developed language, you know, because that requires the capacity for abstract thought, yeah. um, artistic expression, early forms of religious behavior, increased cooperation, settlements, Paleolithic art, um, technological innovation like spear throwers, articulated tools. But, like I said, it's controversial um, because we might be very wrong about when those behaviors emerged. Sure. And again, we might be very biased and kind of thinking that we're the only humans that do any of these things or right. did any of those things. So evidence was found in 2018 in Kenya that dates to about 320,000 years ago of the early emergence of trade and long distance transportation of resources such as obsidian, the use of pigments and the possible manufacturing of projectile points. Okay, that's quite some 
time previous. The authors of three 2018 studies on this particular site observed that this evidence dates to around the earliest known Homo sapiens fossil, fossil remains, like the Jebel, Erud, and Floristad um, fossils. So they suggest that complex and modern behaviors began in Africa around the time Homo sapiens emerged. So it's even likely that some of the, what you would call ancestors before that might have been doing some of those things. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, in 2019, further evidence of complex projectile weapons in Africa was found in Ethiopia that they dated to 100,000 or maybe 80,000 years ago. So, uh, again, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then, you know, we did a bunch of things 12,000 years ago. Sure. Agriculture or Neolithic revolution. Yep. Everything changed. A bunch of stuff changed. Rapidly and at that I'm point. going to mostly not talk about anything after that. Okay. I'm going to focus on the other stuff. At the end, though, I will mention a few things. Okay. Okay. So, one thing I was particularly curious about is the emergence of speech and language. And what I found was that this is probably the biggest hornet's nest of all of these topics as far as disagreement. Some people feel very strongly linguists are harsh. Okay. There's not a lot of physical record of language, unlike, you know, tools and bones and stuff. Right. So first we talk about the emergence of speech. We talk about the capacity for speech. From skeletal record, I assume. Perhaps we can tease it out that way, right? Yeah. So the laryngeal descent theory was developed over 50 years ago. And it says that before speech can emerge, the larynx must be in a low position to produce differentiated vowels. Okay. And if you look at the anatomy, monkeys, which do have vocal tract anatomy like ours, like in the tongue, jaws, and lips, well, they don't have a lower larynx. They have a higher larynx. So they couldn't produce differentiated vowels. That was That's the theory. Okay. Now. Differentiated vowel production is so important, it is present in every single language in the world. Okay. Every one of them. Okay. And there is tons. So that part of the theory seems solid. Okay, I can follow that so far, yeah? Okay. But a 2019 paper showed that monkeys produce well-differentiated protovowels. And that work led scientists to think speech could have emerged before the previous theory of 200,000 years ago was when the capacity so their paper says that speech was possible over 20 million years ago and anatomically speaking um uh, who knows yeah there's quite a range between 200,000 and 20 million yeah and we're talking about the capacity to physically make these sounds yeah so that doesn't link to the when does it happen brain capacity to do a language yeah so no one knows when language evolved, obviously, because all human groups like have language. Um, the capacity for language is thought to be, you know, at least 150, 200,000 years old. You know, Homo sapiens all have language. So probably sure. we had the capability of doing it back then, right? Um, but then there's the archaeologists and linguists that really strongly argue that language didn't arrive until behavioral modernity, as I mentioned above. But this theory uses evidence taken only from European sites, which doesn't seem to make much sense to me. 
No. Um, so it can't explain then how language would have found its way into the rest of humanity who remained in Africa. Right, unless it went back, like was transported back towards Africa. You don't want to be this person, but this just sounds a little racist to me. Yeah. Those Africans couldn't have had the capacity to do this, you know, like Europeans had to teach them how to speak, you know what I mean? Like this just sounds... Yeah, like there's some social... Biases? Uh, biases, yeah. That's my opinion, but I don't have a very educated opinion, so... Okay. Um, Noted. <laughs> so, some scientists think language could have evolved earlier in the Homo lineage. Right. Um, so, modern humans and Neanderthals share a derived version of a transcription factor gene known okay. as FOXP2 that differs from the chimpanzee version by two amino acids. That's very little. It doesn't matter how little. Okay. Um, FOXP2, the important part is that it influences the fine motor control of the facial muscles required for production of speech. Okay. So this goes back to this thing where we said, we're going to look at the skeletons of these larynx. That doesn't actually help now when we think... Yeah, okay, maybe your larynx is in the right place, but, but you how would we know about right. these little tiny muscles from just your skeleton? Yes, we can find some things out about muscles from skeletons, yeah. but probably not these little tiny muscles. These genes that provide the necessary, you know what I mean? Like, these are things you're not going to find out just from looking at a skeleton. Yeah. Um. So, the cool thing is, when they put the FOXP2, this FOXP2 gene, um, this derived form, into mice, they squeak differently. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. I think that it is cool. So there is a theory that even though we have identical sequences of this gene to Neanderthals, that modern humans um, regulated the genes differently. So the gene is expressed differently. Um, and that this is a influencing the brain neurons. And that's why Neanderthals couldn't speak and we can this is not based on very much evidence. Yeah. I, I didn't have this impression that Neanderthals couldn't speak. Is that relatively accepted? Oh, yeah. yes. Okay. But again, is it accepted because we just think they're dumb cavemen and no one's really ever put any uh, strong evidence to... Suggest to, that that's to, real? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, <sighs> the capacity for speech, anatomically is different from the capacity for language, right? Yes. And fully formed languages require the capacity for abstract thoughts. Sure. Yes. Yes. Um, so most scientists then suggest language arose in our lineage sometime after the split from our common ancestor with Neanderthals. Probably no later than 150,000 to 200,000 years ago. Um, some scientists argue that the full grammatical language as we know it today, which obviously is a step up from kind of a primitive language, yeah. began to emerge as recently as 20,000 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, out of everything that I've talked about so far, this has the least evidence, the least consensus, the most passionate fighting, though. Well, there's less evidence to uh, stand behind, so now you can just have emotion stand in its place. Storytelling. Yeah. I'll say it again. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. I tried to find... Ah, I really wanted an answer. There's no answers. So, now is when I'm going to 
end us off by uh, going on a bit of a, a feminist slash equality slash let's stop bringing biases into science rant. Okay. Talk about things past the Neolithic agricultural revolution time. So you may have heard about man the hunter, woman the gatherer. Right. I think everyone's heard that. Of course. Old nugget. So um, the evidence, though, really strongly supports the fact that we as humans have just assumed there must be a gender division of labor throughout our history. You know? Yeah. It's the standard narrative, right? It is, yeah. Men hunted, women gathered. I do want to point out that this narrative is written by... Men. To the exclusion of... Women. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So, um... The the other... Hmm... The the thing is, is that if there was a gender division of labor in the past, it must be right, is the unfortunate mm. thing, right? It must be natural. It's the way our species evolved. And that is why it was so prevalent. Men did the research. Men run the world. And this is, this is what's happened. This is what's emerged, right? Yeah. So recently, now that women can do science, <laughs> real evidence is being used instead yeah. of emotions and biases. And um, even though evolutionary psychology is all about the man the hunter BS, real science, I mean, biological science is going gonna, is gonna to give us a different story here. Um, so there is some theories that women, of course, I mean, a lot of theories are that women did hunt too. But there yeah. are some theories that women were bedded, better suited for it biologically. Okay. Because it was an endurance-dependent activity. Yeah. So, um, I do, I do want to point out that this is research that's been around for a while. But every time it comes to light, it's really shot down as being, I'm going to say a word Political I Political or something. Woke. Yeah, okay. It's been called woke and oh, you're just saying this cuz you're a woman scientist or or whatever, okay? Um the conclusion is that gendered labor roles did not exist in the Paleolithic era. Pretty much just since the agricultural revolution has that started to be a thing. Okay. So, one of the key arguments put forth by the man the hunter people is that females wouldn't have been physically capable of taking part in long, arduous hunts. Um, so, all human bodies, regardless of man, woman, whichever else, yeah. have estrogen and testosterone. Right. Yes. So, on average, females have more estrogen and males have more testosterone. There's variation, there's overlap, just on average. Always, yeah, of yes. course. So, testosterone is what we usually give all the credit to for athletics. Right, yeah. Um, Often, yeah. The interesting thing is that estrogen, or at least estrogen recept receptor, is so much older. It originated mm, 1.2 billion to 600 million years ago. Okay. Um, it predates the existence of sexual reproduction, in fact. Cool. Um, 
So the testosterone receptor originated as a mutated like duplicate of the estrogen receptor. It's about half as old. Sure. So estrogen does influence athletic performance, particularly endurance. So the greater concentrations of estrogen that females tend to have in their bodies um, can give an endurance advantage. So they can exercise for longer without becoming exhausted. Yeah. Um, Estrogen is going to signal the body to burn more fat, which of course is beneficial during endurance activities for two reasons. So first, fat has more than twice the calories per gram of carbohydrates. Yep. You know, quick energy. It just it just has energy. more energetic potential. It sure does. Yeah. Um, it takes longer to metabolize fats than carbs. So fat's going to give you kind of more bang for your buck. Slow burn gives you sustained energy over long periods of time, which of course can delay fatigue during endurance running. Activity, yeah. Yeah. And in addition to this estrogen advantage... Females have a greater proportion of type 1 muscle fibers relative to males, on average. So, um, type 1 muscle fibers are slow oxidative muscle fibers. They prefer to metabolize fats. They're not as powerful. Sure. But they take longer to fatigue. So, type 2 fibers that males tend to have more of are more powerful, conferring likely a strength advantage. Yeah. Um, but they tire quickly. So the evidence says that if while doing the same intense exercise, females are going to burn 70% more fats than males and are less likely to fatigue. Estrogen also is important in post-exercise recovery. So when we're talking about, we're also talking about like heat exposure. Though exercise and heat exposure cause an inflammatory response Mm -hmm. in your body Um, and estrogen limits this response which inhibits you know recovery yeah so estrogen also stabilizes cell membranes that would be damaged or ruptured due to exercise stress so thanks to estrogen female bodies would incur less damage and faster recovery times um so there is no evidence of gendered labor roles during the two million years of evolution for the genus Homo, until, like I said, the advent of agriculture. Yep. Um, Neanderthals had small, highly nomadic bands, and fossil evidence shows that females and males experienced the same bony traumas across their whole bodies. Which would also suggest that their day-to-day lives are very similar. They are. And we do know that they, you know, had a pretty hard life hunting large animals, deer, oryx, woolly mammoths, um, tooth wear... That results from the way they use their front teeth as a third hand for mm-hmm. all these types of tasks like tanning hides and, and such things is equal in females and male remains that we found. Okay. Um, so that shouldn't be surprising. Like I talked about Neanderthals having a small group environment. Yeah. Everyone needs to pitch in, right? Yeah. Um, and they probably all shared childcare of whatever children were in the group, that kind of thing when you have a small band. Um, and so some argue that, okay, okay, that makes sense. But then in early modern humans, that clearly must have changed because there's so many of us. So now we could make the women stay at home. Um, so upper Paleolithic modern humans leaving Africa, entering Europe and Asia show very few differences between the sexes in trauma or repetitive motion where there is one difference, which is more evidence of thrower's elbow in males than females. 
though there are plenty of female skeletons that do have uh, the th- like throwers wear. Okay. Um, so this was also the time when people were innovating things like atlatls. Yep. Um, fishing hooks, nets, bows and arrows, that kind of thing, which would alleviate the wear and tear hunting could take on your body. So that could be one of the reasons that we don't find the same wear patterns in females is because, again, males did have that strength advantage. So perhaps women were more often using the technology to get the same strength out of their attacks. Could be, yep. Um, so a recent archaeological experiment found that using atl-atls actually decreased the sex difference in the speed of spears thrown by modern-day men and women. Yeah. So that was an important technology as far as power. Um, even in death, there's no difference that we've found in how Neanderthals or Homo sapiens bury their dead. So we're talking about how you'd bury someone or at this time with the goods that were associated with them in life of their profession of their, that kind of thing. So um, the goods affiliated with male and female burials were similar. There's no gender difference there. Yeah. Um, So again, there all of a sudden are gender differences in burial goods after the agricultural revolution. Um, Just to pile on some more evidence. Okay. A 2020 study found a 9,000-year-old female hunter buried in Peru in the Andes Mountains. Um, And at her burial site, researchers found a hunting toolkit with projectile points, animal processing tools, all these things that were buried with her. So, again, her occupation was probably hunting. Yeah. Um, And then the uh, researchers then looked at published records of the late Pleistocene and early Holocene burials throughout the Americas. They identified 429 individuals from 107 sites. That's kind of the amassed evidence from this area. And of those, 27 individuals were buried with big game hunting tools and about half female, half male. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, Now, (laughs) critics will often point to modern-day hunter-gatherers to suggest that their hunter-gatherers, so however they live, is clearly how hunter-gatherer societies lived before the agricultural revolution. Right. Um, and they all mostly have gendered roles. So, haha. Right. Okay. Um, foragers are not living fossils. Their social structure and cultural norms have definitely been influenced by other groups. Yeah. Um, colonial groups. Yeah. It's not like they've been in complete isolation this whole time. Yes. Um, also... The ethnographers that have recorded this data in the last two centuries about hunter-gatherer tribes were almost all men. Okay. So they've done a reanalysis of what data we do have, and it showed that 79% of cultures described in this ethnographic data included descriptions of women hunting. And that would just be left out of the published papers. Got it. Yeah. So... I do want to, again, just like the, the problem is that people make these conclusions to prove that we are right or wrong in how we live today. Let's just not do that. Let's just not. Yeah. Okay. So um, the myth that female reproduction is why females were excluded from the hunting and stuff, um, it, uh, it is still damaging to women. 
Of course. So I, I want to kind of eh, bust that as well. Um, it's clear that men were somewhat involved in these tasks. We don't know much about this from fossils. Yeah. Um, certainly, there are accommodations, obviously, for people that were, I don't know, nine months pregnant or just had a baby. Um, I would assume so. Yeah. <laughs> but these are these are not disabilities. Uh, there's current day, I don't know, the Agta, there's evidence. Like, Agta people in Philippines, the women while pregnant and, you know, recently after birth still participate in the hunting. Just for example, just to show that they're physically are capable of doing these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after saying all this, we really shouldn't get too wrapped up in the importance of hunting for early homo sapiens to begin with. So a new study that came out this year focused on that same burial site in Peru and found that 80% of the diets of these people were made up of plant matter. Yeah. Okay. So conventional wisdom in the past assumptions, basically not based on anything, assumptions were overestimated the importance of hunting. Um, so not to be a dead horse, but this in turn led to overestimating the importance of men because men did the hunting. Right. You know, what would you do without me? I bring home the bacon. I was going to try to, the orcs? I don't know. Yeah. The woolly mammoth to you to cook it all up in your cave, woman. Anyways. Um, so these assumptions also led to some crazy dietary fads. Like high, oh, yes. high protein dietary fads, like, I don't know, the paleo diet. Yeah. You should eat like these people did 100,000 years ago. Okay, that's not how Mostly they ate, though. Matter. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to do that, great. Go eat a bunch of raw vegetables now. Grasses. Go, go eat that yeah. from the field. Um, so, anyways, back to this study. These people of the Andes lived around 9,000 years ago, and there is evidence of hunting of large mammals, um, but they use a pretty cool new isotope composition study of the bones to, to figure out what they had been eating. Um, they found burned plant remains. They found these dental wear patterns. And those two things indicated the most important subsistence resource they had was wild tubers. You know, like okay. Yeah, yeah. Underground plants, potatoes, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And this is new, like a newly emerging discipline. The specific isotope analysis of bones to find out what well, it's ate. composed of basically through what yeah. they ate. Yeah. So I want to be clear that this is just one population. Of course. And it could be different across uh, different populations, but scientists are pretty sure that once we start using this, these analysis tools on, on different populations that we're going to find mostly similar patterns, perhaps like the Inuit people, that we do know subsisted mostly just on meat. There are places of the world yeah. that this wouldn't make sense or work. Of course. But the guesstimate is is that we'll probably find more of this pattern. Yeah, I mean, it's likely... This, to me, seems likely because we know that we went through an agricultural re- revolution. It suggests to me that for a long time, you know, the homo species has been... Eating plants and yeah, like learning like, agriculture oh, cool. let's, over so long. Let's grow these plants <laughs> yeah, now. Exactly. Now that we know we eat a lot of them, let's you know let's start to grow them ourselves. Exactly. Yeah, and and men gathered the plants too. Of course. <laughs> um, yeah. So rant over, I guess my very long rant. Okay. Um, 
That's all I have to say about ancient humans because there's just too much to cover. So I'm sorry if I left out your, your burning questions. You can always send them to me at our email address, which is teach me something for that is the numeral, not the word, mm-hmm. at gmail.com. Uh, and I want to thank everyone so much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.